in your house for the Great White North, which might as well be a synonym for the WWE at this point. This took place October 22nd, 1995 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. There were 10,339 fans, 9,000 paid with a gate of $127,976. The highest gate, Matt, of the year at least in your house-wise. It's the first pay-per-view event in Canada since WrestleMania VI in 1990. And they would come back here quite a few times in the next few years, which we'll talk about. Did a 0.8 buy rate, which accounts to 200,000 buys. Oh, man. I know I know. last week, you know, we talked a lot about the click, and we're going to keep talking about the click until the click breaks up. But, Matt, this is the height of the click, isn't it? Um, I, I would say this is the start of the peak. Like, if you were on a roller coaster, this is the high point where I think the line between backstage and what the audience saw really started to blend considerably. Because the, there's something on the show that is just the, the representation of what was going to happen for the next two years. The power struggle between the various click members and the rest of the locker room. The Great White North is sort of like a allegory for the Civil War because it seemed like there would reach a point where it's the click versus everyone else. Like, if you were not in that group, you might as well have been ostracized in the way you were viewed as far as importance on the company. Yeah. You can't not talk about the height of the click without talking about one Shawn Michaels. And, boy, this cat had quite a week leading up to this event. This is, for people who don't know, this was a week before this thing took place. Michael's got his ass kicked. <laughs> they were in Syracuse, New York, and depending on who you talk to, uh, he could have been hitting on someone else's chick, or he was vouching for something. And everybody who was involved in that, except for Xbox Six, is pretty much gone at this point, and Michael's himself. So who knows who to blame for this? But Michael's, he started, started something with these guys who were surrounding this chick. And then he goes to his car and gets pulled out of his window. And either three or nine guys, who, depending on who you talk to, beat his ass. He suffered a laceration above his right eyelid, right below the cheek. Two black eyes, swelling and blood coming from both ears and the right eye. Man, Matt, he got his ass kicked. <laughs> It's always the question of who beats you up can add to the story. Reportedly, they were Marines, which I don't know the validity of that necessarily, because as you mentioned, a lot of the people who could advocate for what actually happened are no longer here. And Sean self-admittedly says, there are parts of my life that I just don't remember because I was so drugged out of my mind. I'm sure that played a factor in this scenario. But I think it just goes to show that, you know, this was something that, and again, he's been very open about who he was at that time. It was just who he was. The the line between his character and the real-life person was almost seamless, because his character was, you know, I'll take on all comers, I'm braggadocious, I'm the best, and sometimes I don't even think he knew when to when to back off and he picked the wrong people to mess with that night and it played a factor on this show but I don't know if this is true because this is one of my favorite things to think about and I did do the full research when you look at Shawn Michaels championship history 
when he lost titles, it was either because he vacated them or faked an injury. Because <laughs> uh, this was his third IC title reign. Uh, he beat Jeff Jarrett at In Your House and a great, great match. match. His first reign, he lost to Marty Jannetty, clean, part of that feud. Then he regained it and failed a drug test and got suspended, which led to the whole WrestleMania 10 ladder match. And then this one, he vacates the belt because he got the shit knocked out of him. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we'll talk about how his first world title reign ended. I'm like, what did it take him becoming a born-again Christian for him to actually lose a title clean? <laughs> like, it was kind of ridiculous when you look at that. Yeah, it took that to, for him to regain a smile, apparently. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I'm going through 97 now as I edit these shows, and my poor fiancé has to put up with me watching it quite a bit throughout the course of a week. And you, you just notice these shows throughout 97, and that's going to be a, quite a year to talk about because that was the height of the whole is he or won't he? Is he going to retire? Is he not going to retire? He just wants to get rid of the title and not lose it cleanly. And this was the start of that. You're absolutely right. He would not lose titles cleanly. And Vince, for all the things we hear about how big of a tyrant he was, he seemed to be pretty lenient on Sean, wasn't he? Yeah, and that led to a lot of, you know, rumors of impropriety between the mm-hmm. two of them, which I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that, but you look at Shawn Michaels and the outfits he wore. I mean, a lot of people really thought he was, you know, playing for my team. Yeah. Despite being the heartbreak kid, like... You know, he came out wearing the cop uniform from the village people and assless chaps. And, uh, so the fact that he would be, you know, smitten with the owner of the company to explain why he kept getting chance after chance, because he was always a great performer. But I, I think there would come a point where even Vince was like, I can't I can't put up with this anymore. And I think he when the time came and we thought Sean was actually done for good in 98, even then there were questions of, is he going to actually drop the belt? Yeah. Big story with the Mania 14, which we'll get to when we eventually get to that show. Undertaker made sure that didn't happen. God, and and it, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I've been very clear in the first few episodes of this show in saying that Michaels after Hogan is my favorite wrestler of all time. I will not make any bones about that. But I find myself really defending him on so many levels from around this era. And the more I watch documentaries on this era and the more I watch the things unfold from this era, it's like in front of the camera when he was on stage, he was amazing. But it just it seems like he was a real pain in the ass to deal with off stage. And, oh, man, this is really the beginning of it. And by the way, this incident in Syracuse, this wasn't all that happened to him in October. Matt, you remember the Blue Brothers, right? Jacob and Eli Blue. Well, apparently these guys confronted him backstage because they were on their way out and they felt that he was uh, holding them back from getting some kind of title reign. And they beat his ass, too. Like one of them pulled him into a room and then the door was barricaded by the other one and they beat him up. So he did not have a good October. And this was really the start of just taking this guy who Vince had to be convinced that this guy was going to be the number one. He had to be convinced by Patterson. He had to be convinced by Pritchard. If you listen to Pritchard's podcast, he talks about that a lot. By the time he's on the rise, this is the shit that's going down, and Vince has to be having second thoughts. Yeah, and compounded by the fact that business was not great, and by the time Sean actually won his first world title, which we'll talk about, his reign was hit the brick wall that was that Nitro takeoff with the NWO. Yeah. So, like, he was, you know, in a lot of ways, wrong wrong place, wrong time. Uh, so I'm sure even that gave Vince even more cause for concern. 
All right, so let's talk about this show. The, the setup of this show is pretty much Jim Cornette's getting the British Bulldog a title match. And then they announced that the winner of this would defend the belt against Bret Hart at Survivor Series. They're really setting up, once again, Matt, that Bret Hart is going to once again take that title. Because at this point, I'm pretty sure Vince has given up on, I want to take this monster in Diesel and make him a huge baby face and have him keep that title. Well, if he was having those thoughts, they came to fruition on this mm-hmm. show. Because you, you could argue that this was the moment where he said, all right, I have, to, I have to put the title on Bret and start to build towards you know his next program. Because... Even by this point, we talked about this on the last show, last WWF show, that the rain had worn out its welcome. Once you have Diesel wrestling King Mabel in the main event of SummerSlam 95, the belt should have come off well before that. <laughs> like, it should never, should never have reached that point. But the problem was also, there were not a lot of credible main event heels that you could buy beating Diesel for the belt, mm. which is why they pushed Mabel to the moon you know, as inorganically as possible. They just took him from men on a mission, had to win King of the Ring and challenge Diesel because he was 400 pounds and, you know, Vince has a hard on for big guys. And so they booked Bulldog in this main event, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> so the show opens up with some Canadian sh- singing O Canada. And it seems like every single show needs to start like this, right? When they go to Canada, it's like we have to hear O Canada every single time. <laughs> well, they didn't, not like they did it all that That's much. That's true. So I could see... You know, and, and it's a big demographic, both in your talent roster and your viewership, which was, you know, down compared to what it was. So you really have to appease whatever crowd you're with. Absolutely. So we go from this to a somber, very sad Gorilla Monsoon saying that he's not allowing Shawn Michaels to compete tonight. The concussion he suffered earlier in the week is just too severe. However, there will be an Intercontinental title match, and Shawn's going to have to forfeit the title. But after he forfeits it to Dean Douglas, Dean Douglas is going to have to defend against Razor Ramon. And then Monsoon goes on to say this is the most difficult decision he's ever made in his career. They were really backed into a corner, weren't they? This concussion happens the week before for this event and they're having to write that yeah michael's gonna have to forfeit it and they have no way of writing out the way michael's looks when he gets on the show and oh boy does he look like hell the writing was on the wall and they really wrote their way out of this didn't they they had to come up with something to get the belt off him because back back then even at this point they were still very protective of how titles would change hands because belts still mattered, and they, they had to, you know, keep the prestige. And this is your mid-card belt. This is not your world yeah. title. In some ways, it shows they cared more about this belt than they cared about Diesel as, as world champion. But I think they also knew that by putting Brett in the number one contender spot, I think they knew even at this point that the money was going to be with Brett and Sean. I think the wheels for that were already in motion, so... Unless you were going to do Hogan Warrior style champion versus champion, you got to put the belt off Sean, especially if he's going to recover and eventually win the Rumble in a couple months. So we're starting to show off. Our announcers for the night are Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and Jerry the King Lawler. And I think we talked about this last WWF show, but I always liked Vince McMahon on play by play. I always thought he did a pretty cheesy, if good, job on the play by play. What'd you think of him? Well, yeah, it was different because remember when you first started, he did this. Howard Cassell impression yeah. when he was uh, on the WWF at the time, whereas here he could be more of himself. And yeah, it was corny at times, but I think he 
he always understood how to tell a story. And I think that was, you know, in the same way that Tony Schiavone always did. So I, I have no, really no bad things to say about Vince as a, as a commentator. Yeah, definitely. When, I think Schiavone is like one of our most underrated play-by-play guys. The more I watch 97, the more I realize how great of a storyteller he is. And I can't wait till we talk about that. But here we're opening the night with Triple H versus Fatu. Well, not Triple H. You got you got to say Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Helmsley yes, sorry. I think Vince McMahon got off on saying that because every time he would say Hunter Hearst Helmsley, he would say it exactly like that at that speed. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Now this will be a series of main event matches in five years or so. Here they're jerking the curtain back. <laughs> To get into the match, Fatu backdrops and punches Helmsley before he can even remove his jacket. And then he sends Helmsley to the floor with, with kind of a flare flip, which I always liked. They brawl in and out of the ring. Helmsley rams Fatu into a corner, but he observes it. I always love that bit when they throw someone's head into a corner and then they, they no-sell it. That was always one of my favorite bits they did. Yeah, because there was a period where like that hangman yes. position was like the scariest thing for, for an audience. Now it's... Now that the curtain has been peeled back, they're like, oh, that's such a ridiculous spot. Like, it's about as dumb as the, when you think about the Irish woman, Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm like, what? what is the purpose of this when you really analyze it? <laughs> yeah, as Matt said, he's fought two's caught in a hangman spot when Helmsley sidesteps him. He then escapes. Hunter then hits a nasty-looking pile driver. He also gives him a neck breaker. And Triple H is wearing fought two down with a chin lock. Hunter follows this up by turning... Fatu inside out with a clothesline. That's the way he always sold clotheslines. Was he do like this massive flip, <laughs> and he do it even well, when he was like four hundred pounds. He would do this flip. Yeah, and, and this is a spot that when I was growing up, you would see whenever Billy Gunn would take Bradshaw's clothesline, he would do the same you know obscene flip. But I have to say about this match, uh, that chin lock really killed. I agree. Team. Goes on too long, and this was. Hunter Hearst Helmsley's, like, first big spot on a pay-per-view, albeit curtain jerker. He's still working the gimmick he had at the end of WCW. It's just so funny when you watch this and you think about Triple H's trajectory. And you're like, everybody, like, we'll say this now. There's a lot of things you can say about Triple H, and oh boy, will we get to them in the, in the years to come. But you can't say he did not pay his dues to get to where he was. <laughs> He hooked up with the right people, even as soon as he walked in the door, but there were parts where he had to, you know, eat shit and like the taste of it. Yeah, three words, hog pen match. <laughs> we're we're yeah. definitely going to get there. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? In my mind, the Triple H character ends with the game. I don't know. I know he's like the King of Kings later, and he's like a whole bunch of other things, but I don't, I don't, I never saw that era as we talked about on the first show. So it's going to be interesting to see this trajectory as it goes. And I'm glad that we're getting it. Like we're getting right. The beginning stages right here. Like this is literally the beginning of his WWE career. I know he was in WCW for a cup of coffee, but here's when it really starts, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So Fatu, he rallies by backdropping Hunter on, well, while he's trying to pedigree. He also no sells triple a, a triple H DDT. And then Fatu kicks him and nails a backbreaker. He continues with a diving headbutt, and a Fatu climbs the turnbuckles, but he misses a flying another flying headbutt. And Hunter capitalizes with the pedigree for the win at eight minutes six seconds. Not terrible because Triple H was still very green at this time, and Fatu was not really a main eventer. But I miss 
and this goes to show the, the, how the times would change. The pedigree used to look like the most devastating yeah. move because there came a point, I think it was The Rock, who was the first one who put his hands down when he took the pedigree. And I think as soon as that started, the move started to look less less impactful. I know, obviously, for safety reasons, there's that infamous one where the guy thought he was taking a pile driver and jumped and almost broke his neck. But yeah, th- this for, for like four or five years when people took it the right way, this was one of my favorite finishers. I didn't realize that the pedigree started this early. I had completely forgotten that. But yeah, I'm with you. I thought this was a pretty good opener. Kind of slowed down, like you said, by those holes and whatnot. But it's just funny to think about what's to come when you see these two guys in this particular event because their gimmicks are going to change and everything's going to change here in a few years. But again, what's important is that you're introducing a new character in in a time where you needed to start establishing new people. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, this character would go through a formative change in the years to come. But this is the way to get someone over. You have them win clean in their big debut pay-per-view match. So Lawler is interviewing Hunter, and they're talking about how bad Fatu smells out there and some typical 95 Lawler jokes here. And as this is going on, we're setting up another feud that Hunter's going to have here in 95 that I kind of alluded to a little earlier, Matt. Henry Godwin, he's sneaking up behind Helmsley. He threatens to slop him, and then Hunter's using Lawler as a shield. And Lawler's, like, begging him not to do it. And Hunter escapes unscathed. And so all of this is setting up this big feud that we're going to be talking about in the uh, coming weeks. And, oh, boy, am I excited to talk about this feud. Yeah, it's funny they set it up even though the reason why it happened was actually more of a punishment than an actual plan. But the smart thing also is that they realized, okay, we gotta let we got to have the British accent go away. Uh-huh. They tried it here, and it, it does not sound good because his character is supposed to be from Connecticut, not England. And I think he is. I think Triple H is from – he's either from Connecticut or New Hampshire. Like he's yeah. From yeah, he's New from England. over there. You mentioned punishment. The punishment wouldn't come until 96, right? Yeah, but I want to say the hog pen match was after the No, curtain the curtain call. call was after that because the hog pen match, I think, was in December, and the curtain call was in Mar- February or March. I'm pretty sure I have that right. I'll have to look it up. So – we're getting this interview with the British Bulldog. I got to ask you, Matt, how do you feel about the British Bulldog? We're going to be covering his whole main event run here in the next few months. I always liked the British Bulldog as a part of the British Bulldogs. I always loved that tag team. As an individual wrestler, of course, SummerSlam 92, just a classic match that I always hold in high regard. But I'm not sure that this, this mid-90s main event run by him, it didn't feel like it held any real weight to it. What do you think about this? Well, I just don't think he didn't, he didn't work as a heel. They had to resort to evil foreigner. That that was how we had to get him over as a heel, go back to that tired trope. But also, athletically, he was a bit on the downturn. Because you watch when he first came in with Dynamite Kid, like, for guys that were really well built, they were tremendously athletic. But I think what's, you know, Bulldog, much like Sean had his own issues, and you're not going to quite see the the degrading just yet. This is sort of the, the tail end of his peak, if you want to call it that. But I, I think they were trying... They were so desperate for main event heels that they just turned, like we talked about this last time, they turned Bulldog heel for no reason. So it just felt off. Mm -hmm. Speaking of feeling off, we're seeing the Smoking Guns. They're arriving for their match. But Vince McMahon, he's going to Razor Ramon and 123Kid for comments. Points out that they have matching outfits, which is pretty adorable. Uh, (laughs) Razor's sitting here claiming that their problems are behind them. And he also hands it to the Guns as being a pretty good tag team. It's going to be a nice challenge. But... The Kid and Razor are up for it. So here we have the tag team title matches. We have Razor Ramona, 1-2-3 Kid. They're going up against the Smoking Guns, who are the champions. 
we have to explain how the smoking guns became champions because the last pay-per-view ended with Diesel and Sean winning the tag. Oh, yeah. You want to go ahead and get into uh, that? So that? Yeah, so the next night on Raw, the decision was reversed because Owen was not legally in the match. So basically, the, the they didn't, like, it's not an official title reign. So somehow, I think the smoking guns won it on Raw that night or a little bit later. So it just... It kind of made that main event feel. It redundant. really did, and it was so like overbooked, yeah. and you know they didn't give a definitive explanation why Owen was out of the match. You know, it's not like he got beat up backstage or anything like that. But uh, you know, we talked about that last week, so it's just very awkward. And you put it on this smoking guns is one of those gimmicks that would have been great in the eighties, but I, I think it's really it's really overplayed here. Yeah, it just it just makes that last pay-per-view, like you said, it feels so redundant. And it literally feels like the only reason it was done was for that image and that photograph of them holding all those titles up at the same time. Yeah, which I don't think had really been, when I can recall, a, a group holding your world title, your IC title, and the tag titles. And the WWF, I don't think that had ever mm-hmm. happened. No. Yeah, because it's not like, you know, the, you, know you think about it, the Mega Powers, they didn't win both titles or win the tag yeah. belts, so... Yeah, I think they wanted it for that, you know, to break history. Mm-hmm. So Billy and the one two three kid, they're trading takedowns until Razor and Bart they enter the match. Bart's taking control, but one two three kid low bridges him behind the ref's back. Razor and the kid they double team Bart in their corner. The kid uses kicks and sliding leg drops, and Razor utilizes his fallaway slam, which was a move I always loved. I always loved that fallaway slam he had. And then he drops Kid onto Bart, which was a fun, which was a fun spot. I like that spot. Eventually, Bart's rallying. He tags Billy, and Billy's cleaning house, and the guns begin double teaming. Bart gives the kid multiple backbreakers. One, two, three, Kid. <laughs> when he first came in, he was this underdog who was, you know, just always rising to to take the big guys down or fall at their feet. But he was always the courageous one who always took on the big bout. By this point, Matt, they're really looking for something else to do with him, aren't they? Yeah, well, they're, the way this match ends, you know, they're kind of teasing a heel turn mm-hmm. for him. But it was also, he was what, I, I call him like the leech of the clique because he just, he was never going to be a main eventer. All the other guys had that believability, which, you know, Sean Waltman just never had. You know, because Sean's a smaller guy, but... He had charisma, and you know his work rate was always top. So I don't think one, two, three kid was ever going to be in a, in a viable spot. So I I totally understand why he would jump ship with Hall Nash not too long after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this partnership, like this, stems from what ninety three yep. when there was the the big upset on Raw. So this is a two plus year angle mm-hmm. that they're still working because Razor's going to pull double duty on this show. Uh, and when you say Bart Gunn, I'm sorry. I, if he's listening, but all I can think of is him getting knocked out by Butterbean when, when I hear that. That's, the, that's my memory of Bart Gunn is him winning the Brawl for All and getting knocked the fuck out. There is a wonderful Dark Side of the Ring on that where it's pretty much Bart Gunn explaining that whole incident, and it's something to see. And I think that's the one that famously ends with Cornette going off for about five minutes on. <laughs> Vince Russo. Well, he did that on air. Like, well, he, he was, well, yeah, all his podcasts. But I'm saying, like, or like on the show. You know what I'm saying? Like, not not behind a yeah, mic. No, he did. Well, it explained like I, that's where his like systemic hatred for him came yeah. from. Which, boy, when we get to '99, that's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun year. Fun it actually stemmed from '97 because he really couldn't stand working with him in the booking room when 
all of them would try. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, I don't think he ever he, he didn't like him to begin with because he saw this like New York yuppie. But that when he explained like what happened, like the ramifications, uh-huh. and per Cornette, like Russo just didn't understand it. I think that's where he's like, all right, this this dumb son of a bitch doesn't understand. The, the business exactly, side of this. and when you look at the smoking guns, you're absolutely right. Billy Gunn went on to have a wonderful career. He's still working to this day, believe it or not. He's in the AEW <laughs> doing his thing. Bart Gunn just, I guess, well, what is it? Lack of charisma. The dude had a good body. I mean, you know, he he could work a pretty decent match, but he just never took off. Do you think it's because of a lack of charisma? You think that's the only thing? Well, I think the brawl for all put the screws to him because he didn't he didn't go anywhere and they also gave him a bunch of bad gimmicks because like after this he was part of the new midnight express oh that's right yeah uh, you know in 98 and he left the company basically after the brawl yep. brawl so you know whatever big stuff he might have done just would not have come to fruition oh, i don't think it's like charisma it's just there's you look at tag teams around this time there's always the there's the marty Janetti of each of each mm-hmm. duo when in Gaffey, i think that's the wrong. I think Jim Neidhart's a better parallel because at least Marty Jannetty, you could say, had a big program with Shawn Michaels in '93. Mm-hmm. Jim, Jim Neidhart basically did nothing as a single wrestler, <laughs> or at least it, you think about uh, Bart Gunn was sort of the odd man out. Although Billy Gunn, you know, he was a star, but it's not like he was ever world champion. I mean, part of that is because he got buried by a certain eyebrow raising, <laughs> uh, elbow dropping uh, wrestler. We'll talk about very soon. Yeah, and. He was supposed to be a star because Russo really liked Billy Gunn, and he did make him king of the ring, and that's definitely something. Oh, God, when we get to 99, Matt, there are so many layers to this fucking onion. It's, my eyes are already starting to water <laughs> thinking yeah. about it. I mean, you know, speaking of tag teams, fun fact for you, do you know how many tag title changes took place in 1999 alone? With Russo? 15. Oh, wow. With Russo booking, that does not surprise me. So to put the cap off to this match, the Guns nail a suplex drop kick combo, which is really cool. You know, the Guns had some pretty good moves. I, I'm not going to fault them as a tag team, especially a babyface tag team. But Billy, he misses a corner splash. Both teams take turns, pulling their corner, pulling their partners off the other in pin attempts. Razor then returns and lands a Razor's edge on Billy. But the kid is begging to tag in. So Razor obliges and tags him. But Billy surprises the one, two, three kid with a crucifix pin for the victory at 12 minutes and 46 seconds. I thought this match was decent. I thought the storytelling was pretty decent. But let's be honest, this is all about Razor and the kid, correct? Yeah, but the finish just makes them look stupid. Yes. Uh, they were trying to book the one, two, three kid as like Scrappy Doo. Where he's like, let me out, <laughs> let me out. <laughs> but it's also Razor's fault because he tagged him in yeah. anyway. It does not make um, any after, of those characters look good. No, it doesn't. Then after the match, he just steals the belts and beats the shit <laughs> out of them. So after the match, we're seeing the one, two, three kid throwing a fit. He's kicking the ropes and razors. He's staring at him in disbelief. And then we're getting some shoves going on. And then the kid attacks the guns. He knocks them out of the ring with kicks. And then he grabs the tag team belts. Razor returns and takes them from him. And he hands the titles back to the guns and convinces the one, two, three kid to leave. This is all about, like I said, this particular angle. Meanwhile, Doc Hendricks, he's hanging out with uh, the Bret Hart cardboard standee, which was the focus of my nightmares for a while because Adam had one of these in his room, believe it or not. Oh, I thought that was just how Bret Hart was pre-1997. Because <laughs> that's the thing. Like, when I look at the Hart family, I'm like, Owen was the total package more so than Bret. Oh, 
you know, and I think he, there should have, when they put the belt on Backlund, it really should have been Owen that beat him for the belt, not digging Bob Backlund out of retirement. Oh, boy. You know, when it comes to Owen Hart, oh, God, I want to save it. I have so many things I want to say about Owen Hart. I know people love Owen Hart, and I all you hear is wrestlers talk about how great of a river he was and how great of a worker he was and how big of a family man he was. But I have some things to say about Owen Hart once we get to 97 that don't really paint him in a good light. And I'll save it for when we get there. I'm always going to respect the man for the love of his family and everything else, but there are things about him I just don't agree with. That's kind of a tease for when we get to 97. Speaking of Marty Jannetty, Matt, he's here on this card. He he gets into the ring, and we're seeing some pre-recorded comments from Gold Dust. And he's quoting movies and saying, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And then he takes a deep breath and tells everyone to remember the name of Gold Dust. And... What do you feel about the Goldust character in this beginning? I thought it was really interesting at first. Like, this character is just so so enigmatic and so androgynous. And I love the vignettes leading up to this. And I, and I really enjoyed the beginning stages of this character. What about you? This was, no pun intended, cutting edge. This pushed a lot of boundaries that the business really did not... I mean, look, gay stereotypes have existed in wrestling. You know, look at gorgeous, or more effeminate wrestlers like Gorgeous George goes all the way back to that. But they really insinuate the homosexuality with the Goldust character at a time where that was not in vogue in any form of entertainment, let alone the boys club that was pro wrestling. But I have to give Dustin Rhodes all the credit in the world for this repackage. This is one of the great makeovers, I think, in wrestling, because when he was in WCW, he was basically the poor man, his, his the poor man's son of a plumber. or that, that was his character, and he got as far as he could. To the point where you look at him here, a lot of people didn't even know that was him. All that, you know, the makeup, and the, the, the movie quotes, just the, the face paint. I think it's one of the great characters that really helped usher in attitude before it actually became official. Absolutely. And rumor had it that Vince McMahon, he was going to go with this character as just somebody who quoted movies and was painted as a gold statue and was somebody who never won the Academy Award he always wanted. And that was basically going to be his character. But once Vince heard the reactions from the crowd, that's when he was just like, okay, let's let's turn the homophobia up a bit. And uh, man, that heat went up really quick. Yeah, <laughs> as soon especially, as he did I mean, look, part of that boundary pushing was why what happened with WrestleMania 12 had to be changed. Oh, yeah. Which, oh Definitely. boy, I can't wait to talk about that. And for the record, everyone, if you live in the Rhode Island area, speaking of Roddy Piper, they live is coming back to theaters on the 3rd and the 6th. Is it really? Yeah, for the 35th anniversary. Oh, man. A show that we have in the bag. We just haven't posted it yet. <laughs> uh, After the Ewok shows, we might do that. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we'll throw I mean, it Speaking up, of then. Ewoks, that's basically what Marty Jannetty was at this time, where nobody... <laughs> Nobody even wanted to see him, and this was like his fifth return. I know. Another thing about Goldust I loved, Matt, was the way Goldust literally fell from the ceiling when he entered the arena. It was always just ma- almost magical the way that happened, you know, and the way the film was slowed down when he was on screen in his entrance, and the amazing, like, glorious music when he came out. It was pretty interesting presentation. Yeah. So the match starts, and Janetti is fending off some attacks from Goldust and sends him to the floor with a clothesline. Goldust is stalling, and then he regroups. He shoves and punches Janetti himself, and Janetti counters with a hurricanrana. Goldust takes some, some control with more punches and some chin locks. 
They're brawling in and out of the ring. Both men take turns ramming each other into the steps. Goldust responds by shoving Marty Jannetty into the post. He then suplexes him in the ring. And then Marty Jannetty lands the rocker dropper. And next, Marty fakes Goldust out on a flying fist drop and gives him some clotheslines. He tries to fist drop again, but Goldust raises a boot. He then gives Jannetty a face-first suplex for the win at 11 minutes, 15 seconds. And if you ask me, that's about five minutes too long. This should have been a squash. Yes. The work rate in this match is terrible. <laughs> There's no heat. What little there was died with that second chin lock. Uh, you can even hear JR on commentary talking about the methodical pace. That's code for him saying this blows. <laughs> <laughs> Too slow. I completely agree with that. Which is weird because you think, I mean, Dustin Rhodes and Marty Jannetty, there were two pretty decent workers. You can say what you will about Marty Jannetty, and, and there was, in fact, a scathing dark side of the ring revolving around him, which I don't recommend anybody watch if you actually like Marty Jannetty, because that will make you like him less, if at all. But you can't fault the man's work in the ring. And I thought a match between Marty Jannetty and Goldust would be good to watch, but you're right, this should not have been a good-to-watch match. This should have been a squash. Instead, we get neither. We get just kind of this plodding, methodical, as JR says, match that really doesn't do anything for this character if you're trying to build him up, right? No, it doesn't. It's like, okay, he won the match, but like... It doesn't really put him over in the, the strongest of light. Because it took him 10 minutes to beat Marty Jannetty. Yep. Speaking of crap, the next <laughs> Our next match, Matt, is King Mabel versus Yoko Zuna. This was originally going to be Mabel versus The Undertaker, but The Undertaker legitimately suffered a broken orbital bone with that move that Mabel did on him. And <laughs> this is when Mabel was just hurting everybody. And Vince was like, okay, this push has to stop. Yeah, I mean, when he almost cripples your world champion and then he's so careless that he breaks the undertaker's nose who's the consummate professional Mm -hmm. he's like all right this is uh this is worn out it's welcome but uh, this match is bad but what what did you expect from mabel who was never great in the ring the only thing he was great at was being sloppy as shit and yokozuna got winded uh, he got blown up in matches at this point really easily. Yeah, which we talked about when we talked about the tag team match yeah, last week. Because there's a point time. in this match where he goes to the corner and he's just so exhausted he doesn't even move out of the way of Mabel's corner splash. I think this is just Vince loves seeing these big dudes go at each other. And this is this is Vince McMahon in a nutshell, this match right here. Yeah, I mean, um, thankfully it's only five minutes, but it ends at a fucking double count out. <laughs> like, yeah. what a waste of time. It really is. Let's let's get into the match real quick. It's five minutes, like you said. Both men are trading slaps and punches. Yoko sending Mabel to the floor with a clothesline. Mabel then answers with some punches and a jumping clothesline. He sends Yoko to the floor. He returns from the floor, and Mabel nails a corner splash. But like you said, Yoko's just too tired to take any of this. Yoko clotheslines him on another attempt. He then misses a leg drop, and then Mabel misses an elbow. (laughs) They're trading headbutts until Mabel just completely fucks up a bulldog attempt. Yoko bumps anyway, and he falls out of the ring. I mean, this match is just bad. Yeah, but but again, my question is, what did you expect? Exactly. Yoko lands on Cornette. Mabel joins him, and they brawl for a bit. And the referee has no choice but to count out both men. So not only do you have a five-minute match between two big-ass dudes who can't really work, you have none of them come out on top, and it's just a fucking double count out. Yeah, no story advancement, no, like nothing was accomplished here. No, and I love Vince McMahon right after he goes, this was a quote-unquote less than stellar matchup. No shit. (laughs) 
Oh, God. Glad that's over. Next, we're seeing Vince plugging Survivor Series. We're seeing that the Undertaker is going to return, and Bret Hart will face the WWF champion. All right, Matt. You ready? Here we go. So Doc Hendricks, he's in the ring with Gorilla Monsoon. He introduces Dean Douglas. Hendricks then invites Shawn Michaels to the ring. And then Michaels slowly enters the arena. Shawn, just say what you will about Shawn Michaels. I mean, this if you want to see an event where Shawn Michaels doesn't say a word, this is your event. You want to see an event where Michaels looks like he just got his fucking balls handed to him in a fight? This is what you want to see. He's looking bruised. He's looking sad. He's staring at the belt. It literally looks like Shawn's ready to cry. The fans chant, no. And then Sean's pausing to draw that out a bit. He holds out the belt. Gorilla tries taking it, but Douglas, in a great move, I always love this move, he snatches it away to get some huge heat and poses on the turnbuckles. And Dean Douglas just says, it was easy. Shawn Michaels looks at him with a face of despair. He then leaves without a word as he's looking back at the ring. They milked this for sympathy. You're going to see this repeatedly in videos and recaps of Shawn Michaels' career. But I got to say, seeing Sean not say a word was interesting. I, I, I didn't think I'd ever see that. No, it's very odd to see that and the fact that he, he looks bad. Like, he looks like, remember when Hogan showed up at WrestleMania 9 with the black eye? With the black eye? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's worse than that. And Sean doesn't have the excuse of getting hit by a jet ski that Hogan claims. <laughs> Which, oh my god, that story is such bullshit. The, the real story is Macho Man decked him. Uh, depending on who you ask. Yeah, well, uh, there's really there's conflicting reports. <laughs> That's true. We're going to get to that in, in years to come. But I think this was really, if you're going to book something, and let's face it, Michaels was to be the one to face Dean Douglas here. And if you're going to make this guy the face of the company and you want people to sympathize for him, this was the only way you could really do it after what happened to him. I guess, but I always think there's a, when it comes down to it, if you can show up to the arena, I, I think you have a, you have a responsibility to put someone over in the ring. Yeah. He looked like shit, but you could have had like a five minute match. I think there was a, there was a the more professional way to go about it, especially because he brought this on himself. Like, it's not like he was walking and got mugged or anything like that. He kind of instigated, and it kind of takes away some of the prestige from the, the IC title, where it can just be handed over like this, and then someone else wins it 15 years later. So the match ends up being Racer Ramon, Scott Hall working double duty tonight. Yeah, and of course, it's another click guy, which, all right, so this is yep. the IC title history from when Sean won it in the end of 92. Up to this point. Tell me if you sense a pattern. Michaels, Janetti, Michaels, Razor, Diesel, Razor, Jarrett, Michaels, Razor. A lot of click reigns in that, but Jarrett had it for like a hot minute, basically, which yeah, is yeah. all that Memphis mid-card piece of shit deserves. Oh, I hate Jeff Jarrett so much. Um, <laughs> wow, I didn't know you had Oh, God, for I Jarrett. have such disdain for Jeff Jarrett. I can't wait to talk about him. Yeah, definitely. And Jarrett was basically the one to hold the belt until Michaels got to it. I mean, let's, let's face yeah. it. Getting to this match, you know, at this point, Dean Douglas had had his problems with the click. We talked about that last week because the match that we talked about last time we covered the WWF, the last In Your House pay-per-view, well, it wasn't great. And Hall blamed a lot of that on the fact that Douglas just could not work. He got blown up minutes into that match. 
Dean Douglas is kind of pulling a Shawn Michaels on the house show circuit as he's faking a back injury. Or the click claims that he's he's faking a back injury. So Douglas is pulling out because of his back hurting him. And the click's like, look, man, everybody's working hurt here. They hated the special treatment that he was getting because of these back issues. And you can tell <laughs> watching this match, Matt, Hall hates working with this dude. Oh, yeah, because this is, this is like borderline shoot. He is stiff as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the click's defense, because I, I think everybody's at fault. I don't think Dean acclimated himself to the locker room very well. But at the same time, it's par for the course with click shenanigans. But Douglas had also worn out his welcome with management. Because yep. he would go to ECW and apparently he said, what do I have to do to get Shane Douglas back? And apparently the response was, ask. The match is starting off with Razor just... <laughs> As you said, Matt, just shooting as hell on Dean Douglas with some punches. God, this is like a five-minute five beatdown for the first like part of the match. Yeah, he's working the arm a bit, and then Razor cuts off Douglas, all of Douglas's rallies and returns to the arm quite a few times here. Douglas responds with some cheap shots and some stomps, but Razor catches him once again in a fallaway slam. He sends Dean Douglas to the floor with a clothesline. And Razor stops more comebacks and suplexes Douglas into the ring. They brawl on the floor again, and Razor's dumping water on him. And he then attempts the Razor's edge, but Dean Douglas backdrops him over the ropes. He rams Razor's back into the apron, and then they return to the ring. But Razor catches Douglas with a kind of a sloppy-looking choke slam. I always love these early choke slams because, like, before that move became prevalent, you know, when the Giant was using it and everything else, other people would use it, and it didn't really look that great. <laughs> No, well, it also depended who did it. Some people have better choke slams than others. But I yeah. also, one of my favorite cliches is that every time Razor would go for the Razor's Edge, why would you always do it where they can grab the ropes? Where they it's can like, grab the ropes time, or backdrop you over them. Yeah, it's like they counter it every single time. Douglas then blocks a huge super back suplex off the ropes. Razor responds by reversing a flying crossbody. He then ducks and gives Dean Douglas a back suplex. Razor drapes an arm over him, and the ref counts three. However, Douglas's foot was under the ropes. And the ref's like, wait, what, bro? <laughs> Does not care. Nope. But after consulting a bit, they decide that Razor Ramon is the new champion at 11 minutes and one second. Just a, an 11-minute shoot, right? I mean, that's what we got Basically, here. Basically, yeah, this was his parting gift as he was about to leave the company. He'd be gone, you know, not too long after this, and... You know, it was Razor padding his stats. I think he's like the first, at this time, the first like four-time IC champion. Yeah, you could tell Hall was not into this. No. You know, I don't know if it was the fact that he was working with Douglas or the fact that he's just kind of stuck in the intercontinental title picture, but he's just not really motivated here. I think it's little column A, little column B. Yeah, definitely. But it's just funny. Dean Douglas is intercontinental champion for a grand total of 11 minutes. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right, so let's get to it. So we're at the main event. British Bulldog versus Diesel for the World Championship. <laughs> and Bret Hart's on commentary, by the way. Oh, yeah, with Bret Hart on commentary. Bad, bad, bad decision. He is not enigmatic on the mic, is No, he? it took him until 1997. And he self-admittedly, like he always said, I, I, I was terrified of promos for the longest time. Well, 97, I didn't think that got interesting until someone else got involved, but we'll get to it. Yeah. All right, let's get so to the match. So... <laughs> No, Shawn Michaels. Yeah, it's high. <laughs> Diesel's nailing Bulldog with forearms and slams. Bulldog regroups until they brawl out on the floor for a bit. Diesel reverses Bulldog into the post. 
He then nails him with corner clothesline and some elbows. However, Cornette distracts Diesel and Bulldog attacks the knee. This was the way you get to Kevin Nash, right? Because they always, I mean, Jim Ross would always say on commentary, that knee has had eight surgeries. He's had eight knee surgeries in his life. And they always went for those, knee, for those knees of Nash. And Nash came off pretty scot-free when he got out of the ring, except for his knees. Like, his knees were just dog shit. Yeah, his knees and his quads. Yep, quads. Bulldog sends Diesel to the floor, where Diesel stumbles into Bret Hart. Bret nudges him, so Diesel shoves Bret. Bulldog uses the opening to nail a chop block, and then he uses endless leg grapevines and leg attacks in the ring. More rest holds. Cornette tries adding excitement by attacking Diesel on the floor. Boy, this match. Oh, boy. It's, uh, you know, working the leg. You know, that, that, that <sighs> works, but not when you do it for the whole time. And we're starting to see, you know, the, the, the Hogan effect where the, cl- the crowd is a percentage not behind Diesel. Hogan effect? Oh, you talking about '95 Hogan? Effect. No, I'm talking about like when Hogan was wrestling like Undertaker or Sid. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, early, okay, early. Yeah, 90s. like like back end Hogan. And Bulldog is spending seemingly hours working on this knee. Oh my god! <laughs> Diesel's responding with suplexes, but Bulldog's answering with a really shitty looking sharpshooter. And I love how Bret Hart's like, he doesn't really know how to use that hole, does he? (laughs) But for the record, I'll say this. Still looks better than the Rock sharpshooter. Diesel's blocking two attempts at a running power slam. He nails the big boot. Diesel then stops Cornette's interference, and Bulldog collides with Cornette. Diesel follows that by limping into a knee attack on the ropes. Next, the fight spills out onto the floor, and Diesel once again tweaks his knee. Bulldog sends Diesel into the post and turns to slap Bret Hart. Bret responds by attacking Davy Boy, and this causes a DQ finish at 18 minutes and 14 seconds. <laughs> yeah, that, that describes the crowd, too. Oh, my God. Just dead on arrival, this match. <sighs> You know, and I wanted to be the one to defend it. You know, I wanted to be the one to say, you know what, there's some great psychology being used here. But these two just did not mesh, did they? No, and Bulldog, I don't think, knew how to play a heel, especially when a percentage of the crowd was behind him. And I, I always think when you have non-finishes in your main event, you've got to find a way to make it interesting, like, you know, like a turn or a debut. you got to have something to get the fans somewhat reinvested. But there, there's nothing here. It's just, hey... It's like a bad cliffhanger of a TV show where it's like, tune into Survivor Series to see the match that actually matters. You know who agrees with us? Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon. Reportedly <laughs> threw down his headset and said, God damn it, that was horrible. <laughs> Vince McMahon, after the in-ring shenanigans and all the beatdowns and everything took place, apparently he threw down his headset, as Matt said, went backstage, Grab Bulldog, grab Diesel, grabbed all the agents involved in the match, including Bruce Pritchard himself, and just laced into them. I think at this point, Vince was starting to see the writings on the wall. I think at this point, he's also seeing Nitro kind of gather some steam and WCW kind of nip at his heels a bit. He's not happy at this point, and I think he's seeing this champion that he got behind really faltering at the seams. What do you think? I think SummerSlam was the first like major red flag. This was the... The shot crossed the bow of all right. I have to make. I have to make a change. And his his beat down after the match backstage went about as long as the match did reportedly. Yeah, 
All right, so that does it for In Your House 4, The Great White North. Matt, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give this WWF pay-per-view? Well, I'm going to start off by saying I can't really recommend this show in good conscience because there's just not a lot of great wrestling. I, I have to say that. You know, we talked about in the last show, there was the Bret Hart match that was really good. Here, there's nothing of that quality. While I, I think you're seeing some pieces being laid, like Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Goldust, who would be very integral very soon, uh, it's not like the stuff they were doing on this show was particularly great in the ring. The most interesting thing about this match is just the, the backstage stuff and the influence of the click being on full display. Uh, you got the one, two, three kid heel turn, which he would carry over to WCW when he showed up as six. But God, that main event just takes the air out of, out of this entire show. Cause it's, as Vince said, horrible. I, and I don't think that's too strong of a statement of the in your houses. This is probably the worst one up to this point. It's kind of a bad show across the board. Uh, I don't think there's a match on here that I'd, give a glowing recommendation to outside of a soft one on the opening. So I'm going to give this like a, the the softest four on 10 that I possibly could. You're more generous than me. And, and it, I think the reason is, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is the worst of the in your houses so far, but the reason why is because at least on those other in your houses, there's always a match that stood out last time. We talked WWF. We talked about Bret Hart versus the pirate. There's also the Sean versus Jeff Jarrett match that we talked about earlier too, which stood out on that particular pay-per-view. We talked about Bret Hart versus Hakushi. That match stood out. There is no match here that really stands out. I would say the opener's decent. I think the stuff that happens in a tag match is fun. But other than that, this is a real fucking turkey, man. I I did not realize before we sat down to watch this was just how dull this card is and i think it's just because of the way it's capped off i think matt you nailed it on the head when you talk about how the main event when you have it end in a schmoz like this did it doesn't really make the card look good on a whole and this this card is when it's bad to begin with i i think there was something that could have been done with goldust and marty Jannetty that didn't happen razor and douglas i mean it's kind of fun to see scott hall get pissed off at shane douglas for 10 minutes but other than that like there's really not much to really watch in this pay-per-view i'm going to just because of the opening match and a little bit of the tag match but man this is this is not fun to watch at all and if the click is trying its best to make this better or make themselves look good it's at the detriment of the entire company because this this is a complete turkey. I would say stay the fuck away from. Yeah, it. Yeah, you think they'd save the turkey for Survivor Series? <laughs> uh, you're right. You know, what, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down to a three. Yeah, just not good at all. But Matt, what do you think is the highlight and the low point of In Your House Four? And boy, we've just we've talked about a lot of low points of that. <laughs> hmm. So I would say the the low point is the DQ finish of the main event. If you already had an abysmal main event and you found a way to compound it and make it even worse. And then I would say, God, asking me for a highlight. That's like asking if I want to walk on broken glass or eat dog shit. Um, I would just say the Goldust debut because I thought it, I thought it was, it was a necessary character to help launch the next era of wrestling. Yeah. My highlight was, um, the start of a big player in wrestling 
who's still running strong in this day as far as the front office goes, Triple uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, as you corrected me at the beginning, rightfully so. The rise of him, and I think his match with Fatu here, is the beginning of something great. And I love being one who sees origins of characters and origins of stars of the business. And that's one, you know, if I was going to p- pick a highlight of this show, that would be one for me. Because as far as the pure wrestling goes, I... <sighs> Razor and Douglas should have been better. I even think the Goldust debut should have been done a little better. The low point for me, that fucking main event was 18 minutes of just dullness and boredom. And uh, Vince was right the next month to take that title away from Diesel because, as we've pointed out this entire show, that it was it was time for that to that run to end. And he let that be known backstage. If this was bad. How are we going to feel next week when we talk about the next pay-per-view on the docket? Halloween Havoc 95, a notorious pay-per-view for many, many reasons that we'll get into next week. Matt, what are you looking forward to when we talk about Halloween Havoc 1995? I'm looking forward to uh, the drinks that I will be partaking in (laughs) to get through talking about some of the stuff on that show. It's pretty notorious for several reasons, and it goes to show when you compare year by year, look at where WCW was, Halloween Havoc 95 versus Halloween Havoc 96, and it's almost like a completely different company. So many things to talk about next week. I cannot wait to talk about that. It's just, it's quite... A mind-numbing experience. If you guys have, if anybody hasn't watched that pay-per-view, which if you're listening to a wrestling podcast, I can imagine that you haven't. Check it out before we get into it because we do go over each match move by move. But once we get to that one, I think it really needs to be seen to be believed. Once we get to what we're going to talk about next week, <laughs> till next week when we get to Halloween Havoc 1995, we'll see you at the matches. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>